If your Bibles turn to Romans chapter 14, we're going to continue on in our series through the book of Romans. And uh, one of the things that I appreciate about Four Oaks is uh, the love that I have personally felt from this church over the years that I've, that I've been here. And uh, I, I, I've heard all kinds of stories, horror stories about churches splitting and infighting and people devouring each other. And that has not been my experience here. And I think that's a wonderful thing, and that's a gift. It's been said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And maybe, maybe that hits too close to home. But, I, but I've seen the opposite here. I've seen people treat one another with respect and compassion, even in the midst of disagreement. I'm grateful for the way that we went through COVID. That could have been a very, very divisive thing. And, and there were disagreements, but I felt like there was a genuine camaraderie between people in our church and a genuine love and, and, and a desire to remain united. And I don't take that for granted. And it's this unity that must be preserved. This kind of unity can be easily shattered, and that's what Romans 14 talks about. And I think that's one of the concerns that the Apostle Paul has. And that's why this morning's passage is so critical to understand. It's so critical to preserve the unity of believers in Christ, especially when it comes to issues where believers can genuinely disagree. And oftentimes that's, that's what destroys churches. It's rarely persecution. It's oftentimes, at least in America, internal fights over things that are not essential. And so my prayer, my hope is that Romans 14 would speak to us and remind us and strengthen the bond that we have in the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. So read along with me. This is Romans chapter 14. We're going to read just the first 12 verses this morning. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 
Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray for our time in the Word together. Our Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive this Word. We acknowledge that you are present with us, dwelling with your people. And so we want the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart to be pleasing in your sight. Help us to understand your word and let its clarity guide us and direct us to obey and glorify you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the big themes of uh, this second half of Romans is the centrality of love in the church. Paul is structuring Romans in this way. He says, if you read the first 11 chapters of this deep and dense theology, if you really get it, if it's really sunk in, it's not just abstract ideas in your head, if you really understand it, the fruit of that will be love. That you will be a body of believers, Jew and Gentile, united together in love. And love is an easy concept to think about. Love seeks the good of others. You can stitch that on a pillow, you can post that on Instagram, but as soon as that gets specific, as soon as we start describing who these others are that you're supposed to love, that's when it becomes difficult. What happens if those others homeschool their kids and you don't? Or what happens if those others parent a certain way that you wouldn't do for your kids? What if they listen to music that you wouldn't listen to or don't listen to music that you would listen to? What if they have convictions that are different from yours and you're in their small group or you're in their Bible study? How do we love in those real practical situations? And we should hold convictions, even about non-essential things. Decisions have to be made. And we're supposed to submit every aspect of our lives under the Lordship of Christ. So it's not bad to have convictions. We need to have convictions. The issue is how we hold those convictions in the same room with people who hold different convictions. How we believe is as important as what we believe. There's a, there's a Latin phrase, coram deo. It's a theological term. It means before the face of God. And the idea is that every aspect of a believer's life, and really everyone's life, whether they believe or not, is lived before the face of God. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, once said that coram deo is the essence of the Christian life. The whole thing is that we understand that we are in the presence of God every waking moment of our lives. Our, our minds and our hearts are exposed before Him. He knows the deepest thoughts. He understands all of our motivations. He hears everything that we say 
or type. Our whole lives are before him. I was thinking about how when we drive in traffic, we do many things in traffic to our fellow citizens that we would not do if a cop was merged into our lane. You know what I'm talking about? Suddenly, you know, you're driving along and you're letting people pass you. You're waving to them. You see the police officer. You make eye contact. You're like, I always drive this way, by the way. (laughs) I do this. I didn't even know you were there. (laughs) We do so many things that we wouldn't do. We knew that a cop was there. We say many things and do many things against Christians we wouldn't say if we really believed that God was there. If we really believed that he was present at every moment, including this one, including this very moment right now. We become practical atheists in this way. But I think in understanding unity and how to treat one another, it begins first vertically by understanding everything we do, everything we say, all the intents of our heart, they're laid bare before God, and that should affect the way that we act. And one of the ways that it should affect is what Paul speaks to us in these first 12 verses. If God is present among us, then we must not pass judgment on one another on issues of conscience. Do not pass judgment on one another on issues of conscience. And instead of passing judgment, we should, marked by, we should be marked by these three things. First, we don't judge, but we welcome the weak in faith. We welcome them. It's verses 1 through 4. Second, we honor different non-essential convictions, verses 5 to 6. And third, we remember that the Lord will judge. The Lord will judge, verses 7 through 12. Let's look at that first command. If God is among us, we must welcome the weak in faith. Now, Paul's writing to the church at Rome to help them work out a theological reality in practical life. Right? God has sent Christ into the world to die and rise again for your sins, for your complete forgiveness. And His Holy Spirit has now bound you together with other believers in the church. You are in Christ. You are headed for glory. You are headed for a new heavens and a new earth, for resurrection. All these things are yours. Now, if that's true... This is how you should live. You should live a life of love, like I mentioned earlier. Now, the specific problem that Paul is addressing is that there are two groups of people in the church at Rome. There are stronger and weaker brothers, and they're causing division within the church. The stronger brothers eat all foods, but the weaker brother only eats vegetables. So this is about dietary habits. And we don't know exactly why they split along these lines. It could be that Maybe there was a, a Jewish Christian, a newly converted Jewish Christian, and it bugs him that nobody checks if dinner is kosher. And so he just says, let's just not eat any meat at all. Or maybe it's a recently converted Gentile, somebody who just last week he was in a pagan temple, and he was offering meat to idols, and now he becomes a Christian, he's going to church, and he's a little worried every time he sees steak for dinner. It bothers him because it reminds him of his past life. And so you could understand, you could understand why they would want to abstain from meat entirely. 
But just because something is understandable doesn't mean it's correct. And this is important. Paul takes a side in this debate. He doesn't say, you kind of are both right, and who can tell? He says, actually, the stronger brother is right. He writes in Romans 14, 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he sees these two factions of believers. One of them, they're eating all the meat that they want. The other group, they're saying, it just bothers me. I, I, I just don't eat meat. And Paul says, actually, stronger brother, you're right. You really are the stronger brother. He doesn't say brother one and brother two. He says stronger and weaker. And the brother who eats only vegetables truly is the weaker brother. Not just because they like protein, but <laughs> their faith their faith is genuinely weak. He's talking about their, the weakness of their faith. And, and the word weak, it, it describes somebody who is sickly, uh, underdeveloped, still in the process of maturity. In other words, the weak brother has not yet figured it all out. They're still fleshing out all the implications of the gospel for their life. And it's going to take time. And so Paul speaks to the stronger brothers and says, hey, stronger brothers, first of all, yes, you're right. You are right. It's fine to eat meat. All that meat is clean. But just let this one slide. If your weaker brother, if it bothers him, that's cool. Just don't eat meat around him. Just be cool, right? Why? And he says, because God has welcomed him, and you should welcome him too. Right? God has welcomed him. You should welcome him too. And let your welcome be sincere. Don't let it be a bait and switch so you can trap him in a room and argue with him. Just welcome him. Don't welcome him just to argue about your opinions. Genuinely embrace this weaker brother because he is weaker. Now, th these opinions that Paul talks about, it, it refers to this internal conflict. I think it's referring to the weaker brother. He's saying don't go to the weaker brother and just try to crush him and, and tell him the right thing with his opinions, or, or, try to, or, or, or overwhelm him with your greater understanding. This brother, is, he's got a quarreling within himself. It's not just kind of, ah, oh, I wonder if this is okay, but it's like a deep and anguished internal conflict. He's figuring it out. And the command to the stronger brother is, hey, don't despise him. Don't despise him. Don't look down upon him. Remember that you too were once a younger brother. Somebody had to put up with you. There's a, there's a meme that I saw. It's got this man with a really condescending look on his face, and the caption says this, this is me looking down on you for not knowing a fact I learned yesterday. <laughs> and that's part of the humility. Every one of us, if you're a stronger brother, you were once a weaker brother. You know? Think about all the people that annoy you. Well, guess what? You annoy some people too, and they have to stand you. So this should cause a little bit of humility. And stronger brothers have a responsibility. You must guide and help weaker brothers learn what ultimately matters and what doesn't. So you're a part of their discipleship. But it's going to take time. And the best way to teach them what matters and what doesn't is to be patient with them on issues that don't ultimately matter. The kingdom of God, verse this is 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not about food or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. So 
Stop scowling all the time at your younger brother, because you're gonna, at your weaker brother, because you're going to make him think the kingdom of God is not about those things. But instead, it's okay. Just chill out. Right? I love this definition of meekness. This is true meekness. This is from Charles Hodge. He says that meekness is that unresisting, uncomplaining disposition of mind, which enables us to bear, without irritation or resentment, the faults and injuries of others. Meekness is this intense self-mastery and self-control. You're not bothered by the weaker brother's scruples. You can handle it. You can handle his imperfections and him working things out and his immaturities. Because you can do that, you can be patient and you can bear with him and you can slowly over time guide him to the truth. And Paul reminds the stronger brother that you're just a brother. You're not the Lord. You are both servants of the same master. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? This person ultimately doesn't answer to you. Let the master handle his servant. God saved him. God can make him stand. I know you're concerned about their well-being, and that's great. But God is concerned too. He knows. He's got his timeline for them. He's working in their lives. You can, you can trust him. You don't need to be overcome with anxiety over this weaker brother. You don't need to send him eight paragraphs on why he's wrong. I remember seeing, uh, sometimes with, with, with families with young kids, you'll have an older sibling who will maybe come down too harsh on a younger sibling. And I oftentimes see the mom say, hey, you know, you're not the mommy. I'm the mommy. Right? You can't speak to your siblings that way. You don't have that authority. I'm the mom. I have that authority. And there's something to that where when we have these issues with a weaker brother and they really are wrong about what they believe, we have to keep it in perspective. We have to remember, you know what? I'm not the Lord. I'm just a fellow servant. I may be a little further along, but ultimately... God is going to take care of it. God will take care of it. I need to welcome them. I need to bear with their weakness. So the stronger brother must take care to hold his liberties loosely. Hold your liberties loosely. But there's a flip side. The weaker brother must learn not to hold his older brother's liberties hostage. Right? So if you're a stronger brother, hold your freedoms weakly, uh, loosely. You know, I, I could do this or I can't. I'm going to consider my weaker brother. But the weaker brother must also consider his older brother and say, hey, I'm not going to hold you hostage to my convictions. And that's important as well. There's a great sermon by R.C. Sproul titled The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. And you ought to check it out. It's a great sermon. But he warns in this sermon that weaker brothers must not bind the consciences of stronger brothers. So let's have a thought experiment. Let's say that uh, you're a new Christian and you were saved out of a life of partying. And there was all, all this alcohol involved and it was just devastating for your life. And you become a Christian and you have this extreme distaste for your former life. And rightly so. You understand why you would feel that way. And you go, I'm just going to abstain from alcohol. It would be sinful for me to do it. I just can't drink alcohol with a clear conscience. And that's fine. And 
a stronger brother should take that into consideration. But that weaker brother can't enforce upon everybody else who is able to drink alcohol with a clear conscience. It's not forbidden by Scripture. He can't enforce that upon everybody else. He can't bind their conscience to something that God has not commanded. And so Paul says the weaker brother must not pass judgment. The weaker brother must also consider the stronger brother. To judge your brother is to contradict God. God has not forbidden this for your brother. You can't forbid that for your brother. And it's also calling the weaker brother to humility. You are the weaker brother, man. Right? Like, understand that. Be humble and be teachable. And recognize that people love you and that you need to respect your stronger brother. And this is critical. Paul goes to both sides, and he gives clarity to the situation. And notice that the focus is not making it all about you. It's not all about you. And that's what guides the ethics of the church. Now, what about disagreements when there is no clear, stronger, or weaker brother? You can imagine someone saying, like, uh, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm doing this for you because you're the weaker brother. And then the other guy's like, interesting, because um, <laughs> I did this for you because you're the weaker brother, and then you have this whole conflict. Well, what do we do? Well, I think verses 5 and 6 help us. Here's the second thing we should do. We should honor different, non-essential Convictions. So Paul brings up another case, and he basically says, okay, so aside from eating meat, here's one case where certain Christians esteem one day as better than others, and other Christians esteem all days alike. This might be a, re- uh, a reference to the celebration of Jewish festivals. Certain people might still keep some of the Jewish festivals, certain people wouldn't. And the reason I think this might be a little bit different of a situation, although still related to the, to the food situation, is that Paul doesn't come down with a clear answer on this. Now, things like the Sabbath, that is commanded by God. So that is binding on all Christians. We must worship the Lord on the Lord's day, right? We must set apart a day for worship and rest. But with regard to these other days that don't have that direct mandate, Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So it sounds like this person has worked it out and they've come to a different conclusion than the other person. Unlike the weaker brother, there seems to be maybe a greater level of maturity here. At least that's what it appears to be. And this means that brothers can, in good conscience, disagree on matters that the Bible either does not address or does not address with sufficient clarity. Peter even says in 2 Peter 3, He references Paul's letters, and he says some of them are hard to understand. So sometimes, you know, Peter's reading through Romans, and he's just like, you know, honestly, I'm kind of confused, right? The Apostle Peter can say not all of Paul's writings are clear. Maybe Paul's like, it's clear to me. I don't know what your problem is. But if, if if, if Peter says that there are some harder things to understand in Paul, well, then that's going to be the case for us as well. So not everything is absolutely clear in the Bible on every single doctrine. One of the great things about you know, being around 
uh, people smarter than you. I mean, I, I went to seminary, and one of the best things I learned from seminary is how much I didn't know. And that was helpful. Sometimes the best thing is to know what you don't know. And you realize that great Christian theologians and pastors and you know, people in the past, they, they, they've disagreed significantly on issues of doctrine. And so that happens. I mean, but Paul is clear to say, don't pass judgment on non-essential issues. There, there are certain things that you, that you can't disagree on and certain things that you can. So in our Bible studies and in our college group, we're reading 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul judges the church. Right? It's not, he's not saying you shouldn't judge at all. He's saying in matters of conscience, secondary, non-essential issues, you shouldn't pass judgment. But on moral and serious theological issues, you should absolutely pass judgment. And Paul actually judges the church at Corinth for not judging. He says, why are you uh, letting this guy commit sexual morality with his stepmom? Why are you guys sleeping with prostitutes? You should bring judgment upon this, because that's a clear moral issue. Or you think about in the book of Galatians, there are people at the church of Galatia who are adding to the gospel. They're adding works to the gospel, and Paul says, man, kick them out. You can't, you can't have that. You should judge that. Those are matters of first importance, serious moral issues that must be dealt with. But in other places in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, why are you guys dividing over who baptized you or whether you're of Apollos or Peter or Paul. Why are you suing each other all the time? Why are you squabbling over meat? What is the deal with this? And so those are non-essential issues that Paul's saying you shouldn't be dividing over this. So Paul's not against judgment at all. He's against judgment over things that ultimately are less important. And it's because certain issues are essential and worth dividing over that we must take care not to confuse those essential things with non-essential because the stakes are so high. There are things to divide over. But because that's such a serious thing, you need to be very careful not to make secondary things primary things. Right? So Christians can disagree on things like your diet, apparently, you can be a vegetarian, you can eat meat, just let everyone do what they want. Your diet. It's interesting that, I was thinking about this, in our culture it's like, you, you are allowed to have sex with anyone, but you can only eat organic, non-carb foods. <laughs> We're very strict about odd things. Parenting style. Choice of school, convictions about what to watch, what to read. These are important issues that every family and every individual must think through seriously and think through them carefully and be fully convinced of their own mind. But they are not essential to Christianity. They are not reasons to judge your brother, and they are not reasons to divide. So we're not saying that you shouldn't think about this or that you shouldn't hold strongly to convictions. It's saying that you must hold them strongly with charity because it's not an essential issue. And make sure you do think through it carefully. I remember I've, I've, I have some friends who are 
philosophers, and one of the annoying things about having friends who are philosophers is whenever I spout something, some hot take I have that's full of conviction, they'll look at me and say, Brian, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, I wish you didn't ask that. (laughs) I'm like, honestly, I have no idea what I mean by that. I watched a YouTube video at two times speed, got halfway through, and then saw a meme. That's my, that's, that's, that's what, that's the research that went behind this, to be honest. But we, this is going to require time, reading the scriptures continuously, praying together, mining the, the riches of church tradition and history, and reading the, the saints of the past who have thought about this. It's going to take genuine good faith discussions with one another. It's going to take time, and it should take time. But when you are fully convinced in your mind, and it's a non-essential issue, there should be charity and grace. In the New Testament, the issue of circumcision is huge. And in the New Testament, circumcision is seen to be a secondary issue. Right? Paul's saying it's not about being circumcised or uncircumcised, it's about being in Christ. That's, 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 that's what matters. And so Paul, when he takes Timothy in Acts 16, and they're like, we're going to go evangelize some Jewish people, he has Timothy get circumcised as a missional type of thing. Right? So he uses a freedom in a prudent way, he should get circumcised. But when Judaizers in Galatia are saying that the church, in the church, everyone must be circumcised to be saved, that you need to believe in Christ plus get circumcised, Paul says, I pronounce a curse upon you. Don't you dare bind people to something like that. God has not bound them to that. You are adding to the gospel. You are taking something that is non-essential and making it essential. And by doing that, you have desecrated the gospel in its entirety. You're preaching a completely different message by making circumcision a primary thing. It is deadly to make essential what God has not deemed essential. Now, keeping the main thing the main thing allows us to disagree while honoring each other's desire to serve the Lord. And that's what he says. He says, look, if you celebrate this one day, you do it to honor the Lord. If you eat meat or you don't eat meat, you do it to honor the Lord. That's the most important thing. There's this genuine desire to obey God. That's what you should be thankful for. That's the biggest thing. So you could think about the issue of head coverings. I personally don't think that head coverings are binding for today. But I honor any brother or sister who disagrees because I know that they're harder to obey God. Right? I, if someone says, I, I feel convicted, I, want to, I, I feel like I need to wear a head covering to honor my husband, to honor God's design, I'm never going to shame. I'm going to be like, that's awesome. I come to a different conclusion, but the heart and how you got there and the desire to honor the Lord, that's what's most important to me, and I love that especially in this world. You're not afraid to stand with your convictions and to want to do what the, what the Bible says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor and I'm going to respect that. And I have more in common with the woman who wants to wear a head covering because she cares about obeying God over a woman who doesn't because the Bible is oppressive and outdated. Does that make sense? D.L. Moody, he's a famous evangelist, he once said, in response to people who criticize evangelism, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. I think there's something to that. I like her way of trying to obey the Lord over your desire not to care at all. And so we should extend that charity and recognize this person thought and prayed and wrestled over it and they came to a different conclusion than me and we disagree and we can keep having 
vigorous debate about that, and we can keep talking about that, and we should. But it's going to be always couched in a sense of, I honor the fact that you want to serve the Lord and honor the Lord. And I think Paul is trying to show us how we treat one another in our disagreements is an issue of first importance. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever charity you wish would be extended to you, you owe that charity to the other person. And by the way, most of your convictions, a lot of your convictions that you strongly hold, at one time you probably disagreed with them. And it took time. It took someone being patient and being charitable with you for you to fully embrace what you believe today. And again, this requires deeply studying the Bible, being in corporate prayer, being patient with another, and, and not losing sight of what is most important. And that brings us to the final thing that we have to keep in mind. Remember that the Lord will judge. This is verses 7 to 12. Remember that the Lord is going to judge all of it. Much of our anxiety over other people is rooted in our desire to be God. Much of our anxiety over other people is rooted in our desire to be God. On our worst days, I feel like, at least on my worst days, I'm like Joseph. I have like this dream of like everyone who is wrong bowing down at my feet, confessing my rightness. But the problem is, there's only one to whom we bow down and confess. And this is why there's this quotation from Isaiah. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, not to you. No one lives to himself, but we all live unto the Lord. Every dispute the church has, every dispute between people in the church has at least three people. There's a per- person who believes this thing, a person who believes that thing, and then the Lord judging both, overseeing both. And the Lord is the one, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, who is the judge of both the living and the dead. Now, if you really thought about that, that would temper a lot of our criticisms and our judgmentalism of one another. You're there, the other person's there, the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne, the Lord of the living and dead is there with you, and you go, Lord, smite him for his tattoos, they offend me. God rebuke her for disagreeing with me on Facebook. I mean, would you really say that? Would you really bring that if you knew that God was there listening? I think we would find a lot of our squabbles are petty. And when you feel tempted to be overly critical or judgmental, would you say this before the Lord sitting on his judgment seat? That's a good metric. And it's not a thought experiment. It's reality. That is what is happening. Paul is advocating for a sanctified sense of minding your own business. Right? You wouldn't parent your kids that way? Well, then don't. But those aren't your kids. And you will not answer for them. Those parents will answer and give an account to the Lord. And by the way, you will have to give an account for your life as well. Now, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. It's only in the gospel, only by the grace of God, not by our works at all. But there is an evaluation God has over the lives of believers. Some will receive a greater reward, and others will get in with singed clothing. All right, that's 1 Corinthians 3.15. There are different rewards in heaven. And God is going to give an evaluation about 
how we lived our lives. Not to get into heaven, but for the dispensing of those heavenly rewards and for an evaluation and, and, and saying, this is how you pleased me. So we have to give an account to God. So our words matter. And this doesn't mean that we get reduced to nice, fluffy words. We just don't say anything. Jesus, the prophets, Paul himself, they said enough harsh and unpopular things to get themselves killed. So this is not just some meek kind of, you know, meek in the wrong sense, some kind of cowardly, I'm not going to say anything, not going to ruffle any feathers. No, the the prophets, Jesus, Paul, they, they said some really difficult things. But it is to say that you should do it as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, with a pure heart and a good conscience. You can virtue signal all you want, but God knows your heart, and that should give you a sense of fear. He knows what you're really doing. He knows who your audience really is. And we want to have a clear conscience before the Lord. Speak the truth, even at great cost to yourself, but do it with a clear conscience with a desire to honor God, knowing that he knows your heart. God wants us to believe the right things in the right way. He doesn't give partial credit for believing the right thing the wrong way. So another thought experiment. Christians disagree about whether you should celebrate Christmas or Easter. Right? And that's a legitimate disagreement, I think, between brothers. Now let's say those two two Christians, Christian one, Christian two, one of them celebrates Christmas, the other one says it's sinful. Then on Judgment Day, God reveals the right answer. It was sinful to celebrate Christmas. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying, let's just, for the illustration, right? I'm just saying, right? I I don't think it's sinful. But just for the illustration. So let's say that God says, here's my judgment. The brother who celebrated or did not celebrate Christmas, he was right. Now, there's still different tiers of judgment. He could have the, the, the brother who did not celebrate Christmas, he could, have done, he could have had the right conviction and he should have done it the right way. So the brother who did not celebrate Christmas but honored his brother and did not despise him pleases the Lord. That's the right conviction the right way. But if that brother did not celebrate Christmas but despised his brother with a 10-paragraph email in all caps... He had the right conviction in the wrong way, and that's sin. Does that make sense? Because he despised his brother. Now, here's the flip. What about the man who celebrated Christmas? Well, he could have done, he had the wrong conviction, but he could have done it in the right way, or he could have had the wrong conviction and done it in the wrong way. All right, so the man who celebrates Christmas, but did not judge the man who abstained, he believed the wrong thing the right way. Would have been better for you to believe the right thing, but that's a, good, that's a good second best. But the man who celebrates Christmas and then judges the one who abstained with a protest about canceling Christmas, that's sin. He held the wrong conviction the wrong way. So you should hold the right convictions the right way, but you can hold the right convictions the wrong way if you despise your brother you can hold the wrong conviction the right way by saying, this is my conviction, but I'm going to honor yours, and you end up being wrong, but at least you honored your brother. Or you can hold the wrong conviction the wrong way. You can believe the wrong thing, and then you can judge the person who disagrees with you. Does that make sense? So that's a, a rubric for understanding how we should treat one another. 
And here's the big idea. We're not called to fear man, but we are, we are called to fear God, and that controls how we speak to man. This is an area where we're prone to self-deception. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle, control his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, James 1.26. So the religious man, the truly spiritual man, is able to control his tongue, is able to have self-control over what he says. And if we kept the presence of God at the forefront of our mind, we would recognize God's got it. He's going to take care of it. I get worked up by a lot of things, unfortunately. And sometimes I have to remind myself, the Lord saw that. The Lord knows what that person said. He's going to bring everything to account. You don't have to burden yourself with that. He really is going to judge the world. I mentioned in the beginning that the church at its worst is an army that shoots its wounded. But at its best, if we, if we do these, if we welcome the weak brother, if we honor each other's disagreements on non-essential issues, if we remember that the Lord will judge, at its best, it's an army that heals and strengthens and equips its wounded. And it takes the hill. Communities bond together when they share a common vision and mission. And the enemy wants to lull us to sleep with all these petty distractions. But what does Paul say in Romans 13, 11? The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up from this pettiness. You know, you read the book of Acts. It was not a fun time to be a Christian. There was a lot of things going against the church. A lot of chaos. But a few Christians prayed together. And fire fell. And the earth shook. And, and the whole course of the world was changed. And I think the very practical thing to do to help preserve our unity is we've got to pray together more. We've got to pray together more about these issues, about our church, about one another, to build each other up. Because there is work to do and we cannot get distracted by these minor things. And above all, I want to have a clear conscience before the Lord. When I give account for my life, I want you to have that clear conscience too. So let's live out this reality. Let's remember that we live our lives before the face of God. And let's treat one another with love and hospitality.